Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done about 625 of them now. And if this, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones organized in several different ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website. And there's also a donations page, which explains a few alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Colin Drake. Colin is in Australia. He has lived a very well-lived life, in my opinion. I'm kind of big on the idea of really focusing on spirituality for the long term. There's no quick fix. And uh, he's done that over well over 50 years. A lot of his insights and observations he has recorded in books. I have a bunch of them here. Beyond the Separate Self, A Light Unto Your Own Self, Self-Discovery Through Investigation of Experience, Awakening and Beyond, Self-Recognition and Its Consequences, Humanity, Our Place in the Universe, The Central Beliefs of the World's Religions, I've read two of these books in their entirety, listened to them in audio, actually. And I'm sure we'll be talking about points they contained and points the ones I didn't read contain. I mean, in addition to these four, you've written, what, 20 or something now, Colin? Well, there's 15 books on awakening per se, of which uh -huh. I've turned 13 into books of poetry, one uh -huh. poem for each, each chapter. And then there's the book on that humanity. So there's basically, there's 29 there. Oh, cool. That's pretty good. You're competing with Louis L'Amour in terms of the sheer volume. <laughs> if you know I just he like was. it. I enjoy it. Yeah. yeah, it's great. You're a good writer. And, I know. Uh, and I, I know you repurpose a lot of the stuff because a lot of this was things that you had written in response to people or on blogs or whatever. And then eventually you, when you decided you yeah, want yeah. to start writing yeah. books, you realized you had enough for a bunch of them already because you'd written so much. Well, initially, I decided I would like to write one book. And I literally thought that's all it would need. And I thought about it for many years, about nine years. And then I realized that I'd actually written about 10, 15 articles, which I'd sent out to on the email group that were via Shapiro. So I started looking at all these articles thinking, well, there's almost enough here for the book. All I've got to do is put an introduction, a prologue, a few things at the end. So they came together and they made a book and I published that book and I thought that was it. I didn't think I was ever going to write another book. But people started asking questions and I started replying to the questions and each one of those looked like could be a chapter in the next book. And, and I started seeing more things in my meditation contemplations and each one of those I wrote about and that became another chapter. The next book just grew organically like that. Cool. And since then, they've all done that. They just grow organically. I'm never actually intending to write another book. But there's always one in the pipeline and a book of poems in the pipeline from the previous book. So hmm. there's always two books in the pipeline, whether I actually sit down to write a book, which I don't, or not. They just come. Kind of like getting pregnant without intending to, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess so. they're both enjoyable activities. You know? yeah. So let's backtrack a bit. You started your spiritual path back in the 60s, as did I. We're a couple of old hippies. And you've had an interesting journey. We don't need to go through every little nook and cranny of it, but uh, some of the highlights I think people would find interesting, and it'll give them a better sense of 
who they're yeah. listening to okay. here. What was your initial impetus to get interested in spirituality? Well, initially, I came from a very strong Methodist background, and I went to a Methodist boarding school in the 50s. You can imagine what that was like. And obviously, in that milieu, there is, there is some kind of spirituality in the background all the time, but it was uh, very easy to actually discount it all because of the way it was presented. So I, I came out of that and I joined the, went into the hippie era in London. I lived in London in, in the late 60s. And I started reading uh, Ospensky. I was, yeah, Ospensky. I was, and um, I read Ospensky and I thought it was very interesting what he said. Basically, he was saying that awakening is the purpose of life and that's what we should be doing, you know. He was um, a, a protege of Gurdjieff, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. He was Gurdjieff's main disciple. He was the one that kind of expounded his views and wrote books. Uh, but, but that were more accessible because Gurdjieff's quite inaccessible to read, actually. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that for a bit. And at some stage during all that, I actually came to the realisation that there was nothing in existence that could hurt me, in essence. Mm-hmm. I actually had that realisation, which was quite profound, actually. And the other thing about that was that having, when I read Ospensky, he made it so so hard that what you had to do to wake up. I thought, <laughs> well, he's definitely right, but... Yeah. But he's, I think I'll give it a miss for a bit. I heard that their technique used to involve trying to remember the self all day long. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I heard this from somebody who had interacted with a bunch of those people back in the 60s. And this was a spiritual teacher I had had. And he was thinking, what's wrong with these people? Why is their speech so halting? Yeah. They'd speak a word or two and then they'd pause. And they'd speak a word or two and then mm-hmm. they'd pause. And he, and he said, why aren't you speaking fluently? And they said, well, we've been instructed to try to remember the self. And, he, and then he went into the whole explanation of how that's yeah. not quite how to do it. Yes, and you can imagine if you try to live like that, how it removes all spontaneity yeah. from life. Divides the mind, I, mean, I would think. Uh, yeah, and the funny thing was uh, Spencer on his, on his deathbed, he had his main disciples gathered around him and he looked at them and he said there is no way they spent all this time learning his way to do things the fourth way or whatever it was and then he told them there is no way and then he died well (laughs) that's pretty discouraging you know yeah really (laughs) so i just thought well i'm sure this is the aim but i'm i'm in london i'm a hippie i'm enjoying life i'm you know and uh i'm just going to keep enjoying life until see what happens you know that's basically what i did but on the other hand, during that period, I also had a very strong LSD experience, which actually it was so strong that what it did was it opened the barrier between the subconscious and the conscious so that everything that had been drummed into me by, by my parents, by Christianity, by my school, all that conditioning just poured out. It was horrific when it happened, but at the end of it, I just felt totally clean. You could, they talk about brainwashing. I felt like somebody actually brainwashed me. They'd taken all the shit and washed it all out. And that actually has remained, that emptiness of all that pre, all that stuff that was drummed into me. That just didn't really return. And so that was pretty profound also. And that was, yeah, that was kind of a permanent out. shift then. It was actually. Um, and the other thing about that is during the experience, I was in such a state that I, I thought I was mad. I said to myself, you must be mad. And then I realized there was one small part of my being that was looking at it saying, well, this lot was mad, but this bit can't be mad because it's looking at it saying this lot's mad. Mm. And I realized that that small part of my being was actually the essence of what I am. That's, and I, I literally later discovered, I call it pure awareness. So at that stage, I had that discovery as well. 
I couldn't put it into words at the time. I just knew there was one small part of me that was looking at the rest of it and was unaffected by what was going on around, around me. I used to be kind of like that in a way too. It's like I was always the one who could still drive a car no matter how stoned we were, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, well, actually that's interesting because when you drive a car, you basically are doing it totally on automatic. And the, the body and mind knows how to do it. You know, you haven't got anything to do with it, really. The only problem with that when you're doing that is if you run into an emergency, that can be dodgy when you're really stoned. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it could be overwhelming, yeah. So, but there was, a, so, you know, no matter how, how severe the confusion that would sometimes be there, there was this little something that was clear. That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And the other thing was, like, I took mescaline a few times, synthetic mescaline which I found to be a very beautiful experience because acid can be quite freaky. You can go up and down, all kinds of shit goes on. But mescaline kind of takes you up very slowly to a pure kind of high plateau and you just stay on that plateau. It's beautiful and you come down again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's exquisite actually. So I did that a few times and when I did that, I actually did that as a purely spiritual experience. I'd like to be by myself in a very clean environment and just dig what is, you know. Although I, after that, didn't really do anything spiritually for maybe six or seven years, that was mm. a very profound shift. That all the thick. Did you reach yeah. a point with the drugs where you felt like, all right, I've learned what these are going to teach me. I don't need to do these anymore. With regard to the hallucinogens, I did. Yep. And with regard to the uh, the weed, <laughs> but I just found that to be a, after a long day's work. I just found that to be a very enjoyable experience. Just to get stoned, just to music, rap, you know, you know, just. I got past the hallucinogens. I felt they'd given me all I wanted to get from them. And, yeah, I just smoked a bit after that for, for a few years, you know. But once we came to live up here, because we were living in Sydney at the time, once we came to live up here in the bush, they call it in Australia, we live in subtropical rainforest overlooking the ocean, and we built a pottery up here. So we, we started off with a very basic, no-power, very basic arrangement, and we had a lot of work to do. And when I came to live up here, which is the ideal place to grow cannabis, if you wish to, lots of people do. But I actually gave it up because I was too busy. I actually had too much work to do. I could not, hadn't got enough time to smoke, so I just gave it away. So that was interesting. So I wanted to know just a bit about the whole journey. Yeah, just Um, skim through it, whatever you, the highlights. So when we were living in Sydney, we started going to, towards the end of our stay there, we started doing yoga classes. And there was a Jesuit priest, an ex-Jesuit priest who gave the classes. And he stressed a lot on relaxation and meditation. And he, he would just wander around quoting from the Upanishads and the Dharmapada and all, all the sacred scriptures of the world. And that was very um, inspiring, you know. So that kind of got us thinking about all this stuff again. And then we came involved with the Raja Yogi, you know, the Brahma Kumaris. I've heard of them, mainly from hearing you talk about them, but I had heard of them before, but I don't really know anything about them. I think you well, said there was some strange belief they had where everything is supposed to repeat itself every 3,000 years or something. So you and I have, have had this conversation before. 5,000 years ago, we were doing exactly this. Yeah. Oh, okay. If it seems like deja vu to you, you'll know why. You know? should think you would have worked out your computer problems in the last 5,000 years. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and, they, you know, I mean, what an odd belief, because if that were true, we'd be finding relics of computers buried yes. in archaeological sites and stuff. Yeah. When we started with them, they had this very lovely meditation technique. It was very beautiful and very uh, calming, and it was lovely. But then they introduced this dogma, and basically you had to leave the dogma to stay in the group, so we, had, so we left. But then when we left Sydney and came up here and built the pottery, we started going to Satchananda yoga classes. Have you heard of Satchananda? 
When you first were saying it, I thought you were referring to Swami Satchitananda, who was active no, in the U.S. and spoke at Woodstock and everything. But I hadn't really, oh, no, I'm no. not familiar with your guy. He's a, a direct disciple of Shivananda. Have you heard of Shivananda? Yes. Of uh-huh. Yeah, I heard okay. of him. So he was one of his main disciples, and he, right. he told Satchitananda to go out and teach. So Satchitananda did. He's traveled the world for years and he taught just taught yoga he taught hatha yoga kriya yoga raja yoga and he taught all these in a very non-dogmatic way he was teaching the, the techniques but not instilling a lot of dogma which was actually very a very nice way to do it because you basically would you were learning everything by your experience by doing the techniques rather than having to rely on any dogma you know so we did that for uh, quite a long time I still do it i still do yoga, yoga nidra which You've heard of Yoga Nidra? Yes. I interviewed a guy named Richard Miller. That was his main thing that he teaches, and maybe a couple other people also have been into that. Satchinanda lying down, it's very relaxing, yeah, right? Yeah. Satchinanda was actually the guy who really introduced that to the West. It was his big thing, one of his big things, Yoga Nidra. What does so Nidra mean? Does Nidra mean sleep or something? It means sleep. Yoga Nidra means asleep. They call it psychic sleep. That's what they call it. You're not actually asleep, but you're on the threshold between sleep and being awake. And you're just lying in a very relaxed way, listening to and following the instructions. And it's always in a set format. And I've actually been doing it every lunchtime for over 40 years now, I'd say. In 20 minutes, you could lie down feeling completely exhausted and pissed off with life and fed up with everybody, whatever, you know. Oh, oh geez. Uh, feeling like suicide, should we say? You lie down. Twenty minutes later, you get up. And, wow, where am I? What day is this? It's just amazing. Twenty minutes—that's all it takes. Funny, um, after all these years, you're not feeling suicidal, but I know what you mean. No, that's true. I don't feel suicidal. <laughs> just, that was just a slight exaggeration, but yeah. you get what I mean. It just changes your headspace completely in twenty minutes. It's amazing. So I'm still doing that. And he, the other thing he taught was kirtan. That's chanting Sanskrit mm-hmm. mantras. And we've had chanting at our house now for once a month for over 30 years. We chant together with drums and kit harmoniums and cymbals and all kinds of shit we go on with. Yeah. So that's really nice. We really like that. You get really high on that. So Satchinanda, and I still do Hatha Yoga every day. You know? So Satchinanda was a big influence on my life. And then there was Ramakrishna. I ran into Ramakrishna. You obviously know about Ramakrishna. Obviously, you didn't run into him, but you ran into his lineage. The I ran into his teaching. Yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. That's right. That's right. So you know about Ramakrishna. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. I well, study regularly with a Swami who is yeah, you were saying, that's in right, the yeah, Vedanta yeah. Society. Yeah. Is that from the Vedanta Society that Vivekananda set up back in the early yeah, 1900s? Uh-huh. In fact, the yeah, very well, building, I think, which he established in New York City, that's where this guy is located, Swami Savarpiyananda. So you would obviously know that uh, Vivekananda was Ramakrishna's main disciple. Yes, I'm okay. pretty familiar with it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, you would be. You. Anyway, so Ramakrishna is an amazing guy, as you probably know. I was at a, uh, a silent Satchinanda weekend retreat, and I just was in the library looking at the books. Like, and there was a book that said, The Gospel of Ramakrishna. I thought, what a pretentious title. So I picked it out and started reading it. And I'd only read a couple of pages, and I was just absolutely hooked. I could not put it down. And then I got initiated by a, a nun from the Sarada Vedanta Society. Sarada was Ramakrishna's wife, so she was a Ramakrishna nun, basically. So I spent 10 years 
heavily involved with meditating on Ramakrishna, reading. I read everything that was ever written about him, everything he ever said. I ingested it. I just love the guy. You know? I still do. The guy's amazing. I think he's the most amazing human ever to have been born, actually. So anyway, so I did that for a long time. And then I ran into um, a friend of mine at the market came to me. I sell pots at the market, or used to. You're a potter, a ceramic potter. artist, right? Yeah, I don't like the word artist. But I'm a ceramic artisan. Because I make domestic wear, uh-huh. domestic wear, which you use in everyday life. My wife and I both do. We make 30 different items. We used to make a range, which semi-retired now. We actually lived on making pots for over 30 years and selling them at markets and galleries and whatever, whatever. And they were all different because they were fired in wood kilns. And if you fire something in a wood kiln and you leave the pot unglazed on the outside, basically maybe a bit of decoration. What decorates the pot is the wood firing itself, the ash and the flashing and the flame. It decor- mm. And every pot is unique, oh. which is lovely. So I would say the process is the artist. We are just the artisans who put it together. So that's how we've made a living all these years. So we were, now I've lost my thread. Oh, yes. So I was at the market selling pots. And a friend of mine, this is in 1996, right? So it's actually 25 years ago to this month. This is when all this happened. She came up to me and said, you're really stuck. And I said, I'm not stuck because I, I was very happy with what I was doing. I was getting a lot out of it and it was all good. So she said, oh, no, you're really stuck. And she gave me this video and she said, look at this. And I thought, oh, well, you know. So that Actually, that was probably in the October. So I sat at my coffee table for about three weeks and I had to go back to the market the following month and, and give it back to her. And I thought, well, I better have a look at it. So I put it on and had a look at it and there was this vibrant, Blonde from somewhere in the USA with a very strong southern accent. Louisiana. Yes, Louisiana. Her name was Gangaji, as you, you obviously know her. And uh, I put it on, I, I thought, no, I can't stand this. Because I was used to seeing Indian swamis. I had an Indian, I've had two Indian gurus and I've been heavily involved with the whole, that whole thing. And this is, no, I can't. So I thought, anyway, I'll give her five minutes. I thought, like I thought I said, opened the box, Gospel of Ramakrishna, and gave it two pages. I thought, I'll give her five minutes. And within five minutes, I was hooked with what she was saying. And basically what she was saying is something I'd read many times in studied in the Upanishads. I knew what she was saying, but it's just the way she was saying it. She said, you are already that which you are looking for. All you've got to do is stop and look and you'll see it. Stop all you're doing, all your practices, everything. Just stop. So I watched the video for an hour. And then when I went back to the market with the video and was talking to my friend about it, she said, this woman is in Byron Bay at the moment, and she's been here for a month, and she's giving satsang. She gave two months of satsang a venue in Byron Bay in 1996. It was amazing, every day, at the old slaughterhouse, actually, the old meatworks, which they turned <laughs> into this amazing it's, it's amazing space that would hold up to 700 people. So she was giving satsang to us, about 700 people every day. So I went to see her, and... Um, the very first meeting, I came out, I just actually felt kind of drunk. I didn't want to drive. I asked my you'll have to drive because it was just so strong, the impact of what she was saying, the way she was saying it. And it actually caused me to stop. And when I stopped completely, there it was, you know, wow. Anyway, so then at the end of that month, she was giving a seven-day silent retreat nearby here. So I went on the seven-day silent retreat. That was, that was 25 years ago. And, uh, yeah, I just came out of that retreat a completely different person, completely different. I had such a profound awakening in that retreat that when I said I was slightly drunk when I came out of the first meeting, I actually felt drunk for a year after that retreat. 
I was at the retreat, actually. The retreat was a seven-day retreat. And after five days, I felt so inebriated. I thought, I'm never going to be able to drive home. How am I going to get home? And literally, so I think the next day I woke up and, I, and there was a slight pause when I felt slightly normal. So I jumped in my combi and started heading home. And even then I was laughing and crying and carrying on, but I managed to get home all right. So that was the effect. That was very profound. And since then I've cultivated staying awake by doing inquiry and investigation on a regular basis every day. The initial awakening is actually quite easy. Ramana Maharshi said that it's easy to wake up, but that's when the work begins. You can have an awakening quite easily, but then you actually have to be vigilant to that awakening. You have to honor the awakening. Let me say several things and see if you agree with them. One is obviously one thing leads to the next. And by the time you met Gangaji, you had already been doing spiritual stuff for 40 years or whatever it was. And obviously that probably laid a nice foundation for the experience you had with her. You may say that, but Gangaji said quite clearly in the first meeting I ever saw her, she said, all your previous practice has been a waste of time. It's been a bad investment. She said that. She said, wake up now. You can all wake up now. Yeah, I would agree with her. Yeah, you would. Most people would. I fully Mm -hmm. agree with you. And I don't totally agree with her. I think what you said is right. It's set a nice platform, nice basis. I'll give you an example of that. The beginning of my awakening in that retreat was when I sat down after three days to do self-inquiry for the very first ever time. I hadn't done, ever done self-inquiry. But I'd always mm-hmm. meditated with the mantra and the breath and visualization. That had been my technique. Mm-hmm. So finally, I didn't seem to be getting everywhere. Everybody around me seemed to be getting it. And I was, so finally I thought, well, I, I should, maybe I should try this self-inquiry. So I did. The result of that was when I, I sat down, I did a bit of my normal meditation. And when I then entered the self-inquiry, I had a very quiet mind, very still mind. Mm -hmm. And then if you enter inquiry with a very still mind and you ask, who am I? The result for me was actually I was looking into, there was the question, who am I? There was the kind of the radiance by which, or the, yeah, the illumination by which the question itself could be seen. There was a nothingness, i.e. no thought relative to which the question could be seen, because every every perception requires a background of of nothingness for it to occur. And then there was the awareness which saw it. So there was basically there was this radiant aware nothingness when I asked who am I. And I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't had that prior practice. Yeah, I don't either. And all the traditional teachers, Shivananda, Ramakrishna, Shankara, Patanjali, you can find in all of their teachings and writings the emphasis on long, dedicated practice or focus on your spiritual development. You know that the second verse in Yoga Sutras, um, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. So you had actually achieved a quiet mind through all the yoga and the practice you had done so far, and that provided a, a ripe foundation, a ripe field for the results you had when you met Gangaji, and she herself, and many other spiritual teachers who come out and say, oh, you don't need to do anything, just wake up, had done a lot of stuff before they had some sort of awakening. So it's a little bit... You can't really tell, actually, because that's true. However, on the retreat I was on, for this seven-day retreat, there were a lot of very young people there who'd done no practice. She encouraged people to report on what was happening for them. And these people, many of these people gave the most wonderful, glowing... And obviously not concocted. I mean, these are true reports of what they were waking up to. 
oh, these yeah. people have no prior spiritual practice. So there's that. Oh, that's it. That's the counterbalance. And the other thing about that is, as, as Ramana Maharshi said, he said, awakening, the initial awakening is very easy. After that, the work begins. That's when you have to keep at it. You have to keep at it. You have to keep at it. You can have a glimpse. I mean, I had a glimpse at 19, as I was saying. I had that glimpse that nothing could ever hurt the actual essential essence of what I was. At 19, I had that glimpse. But that was when the work began. So for me, my whole thrust of what I write and what I say is that awakening is very simple. But then you have to keep at it. Then you have to keep at it. Yes, no, I agree. We can define what awakening is and we can define what keeping at it means. We'll get into all that stuff. But I just pushed back a little bit on this theme because there are teachers walking around who say things like, oh, you're already enlightened. That's it. Don't do anything. Don't bother doing any practices or anything else. And there might be a one in a million people for whom that's a useful instruction and it really applies to them. But the vast, vast majority of people, it's just not going to work. I agree with you. I fully agree with you, yeah. I've actually had interactions with many people who they run into issues like that and it's caused them a lot of problems. because it they, does, they, yeah. they It's frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And yet, once again, as I say, I think the awakening is simple, but then you really have to honour it, you have to stay with it, you have to stay vigilant to it, you have to keep at it to ground that awakening so that it becomes part of your day-to-day life. Yep, ground it is a good word, and integrate it and, you know, have it so permeate your being that no matter what you go through, no matter what vicissitudes, you know, like Christ being crucified, I doubt he lost his awakening because it was just so profoundly established. Yeah, yeah. That's what what you have to get to. But obviously most of us wouldn't do so well under those circumstances. It's interesting. You can't really tell until it happens to you. you No, I hope it doesn't, but you can't. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You've probably had experience. I had an experience of that last summer. I was up at court playing a sport with some friends and I tripped over a chain and fell flat on my face mm. and smashed mm. my nose and my, I was mm. bleeding and everything. Mm. But mm. it was kind of interesting in a way because, you know, that quiet little thing that you were talking about that mm. you, you noticed mm. on Ella, there it was, you know, in yeah. the midst of smashing yeah, yeah. my face, the inner yeah. experience was nothing happened. You know, that was, yeah, 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 that's that right. was just on the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just more phenomena happening to the mind body, but not to you, you know, not to your essence. It's exactly. So maybe this is a good segue for having you explain what you mean by awakening. So I always talk about awakening from the misidentification of being a separate object in a universe of separate objects, which most people identify with. Most people identify themselves as being an object, a separate object in a universe of separate objects. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes. And obviously, if you do identify like that, then this causes a lot of problems because not only do you objectify yourself, but you objectify all others. Now, once you start to objectify in that way, we all know what happens when you start to objectify other people. This causes all kinds of problems, judgments, mistreatment, and lack of compassion and all kinds of things. Yes, that's right. If you think you're a separate object in a universe, a separate object, you treat everybody as an object. Because when you fully wake up, you realize actually that everybody is of the same essence as yourself. There is actually no separation. Now, once you realize that, the thing about compassion, all right, people say you need to foster compassion. But compassion is an outcome of realizing the essential oneness, the same of the world, the same essence. It's an outcome. It's not something you foster to get that outcome. It's the outcome of awakening itself. I agree. If you think you're a separate object and that everybody else is a separate object, then fostering compassion for those is going to be quite hard because 
you don't regard them as being you or your same essence, and they are just separate. We're all just in it for the, you know, we're all dancing together, but we're all in it for what we can get, you know, in it to yeah. win it. Well, you know, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So what does that mean on the deepest level? And your enemy. And your enemy. But what it really means is you see your neighbor or your enemy and you see, you know, that verse in the Gita, you see the self in all beings and all beings in the self. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. So that's why I'm always talking about awakening from being an object to realize we are all of the same essence. And I have a process that I take people through to point them towards this. Now, I'm always uh, very keen for people to investigate this for themselves and to come to their own conclusions because I don't think anybody can – you can't get it from a book. You can't get it from another person. It always has to be from within yourself, which is not surprising because, as you know, it is within us all. We all have this potential. We all have the same self. So it's just a matter of looking and seeing. So I like to just provide pointers as a way to look and see. So I have a very easy technique, which I developed, called investigation experience. And all of my books, in fact, all of my insights over the last 25 years have really come out of using that technique as it's, as the grounding, the basis. So, Would you like to explain to us how it works? Yeah, well, well I'll, I'll take you through it and you can tell me whether... You can do it for yourself as we talk about it. Okay? Sure, and everybody watching and listening can do it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And then if there's yeah. any questions, anything people don't understand, we'll talk about those as we go okay. through the process. Yeah, people can send in questions, as I explained earlier. The live audience, anyway, can do that. Okay. So to do this process, you basically need to be in a very comfortable position so your body is not causing you any discomfort. I do everything in Shavasana, the corpse pose. That's mm-hmm. how I like to do things. So you need to find a very comfortable position where your body is totally comfortable. This is a bit trickier. You need to let go of all previous belief systems that you have about anything. You need to actually start where Descartes started. You know where Descartes started his investigations? You doubt everything. You believe nothing. Right? You start with an empty slate. So as far as possible, start with an empty slate. I know mm. it's hard to said and done, but... Yeah, obviously, at least momentarily, a person might think, all right, I'm not going to think about all the stuff I believe, but those beliefs are still rooted in their, they are. They are. In their and, intellect. And that's true. But during the process, we all come to a very simple technique to deal with beliefs and things as they come up. So it's not as hard as it sounds. As far as you can, start off with it. Now, so the process is quite simple. We're just looking at this moment of experience, this actual moment of direct experience that we're all having, okay? Now, this moment, it consists of three elements. Each experience consists of three elements. There's mind stuff, that's everything that comes out of the mind. There's sensations, that's everything detected by the body and its sense organs. And there's the awareness of these. Now, would you agree they are the only three elements of a, a moment of direct experience? Just have a think about that. To check your own moment of direct experience now, see if you can find anything else apart from those three elements. Sam, again, there's mind. There's, there's mind stuff. That's everything that appears in the mind. There's sense impressions, everything detected by the body and its sense organs. Mm-hmm. And there's the awareness of these. Now, can you find anything else in this moment? Well, there's awareness itself, but that's not yeah, obviously yeah. something you experience through the senses. No, no, of course not. All I'm asking you is, can you find anything apart no. from the three elements? No. no. Okay. Don't mean and to give you a hard time. <laughs> Sorry? I say I don't mean to give you a hard time. Nope, I can't find anything else. No, no, I want you to give me a hard time. As I said to the last person I was interviewing, who was interviewing me, I'm always looking for people to find holes in what I'm saying. All right. So well, I'd like people to shoot it down. If they can shoot it down, fine. That's right. good attitude. So, 
We agree that there are the three elements. That's all there are. In this moment, and we can actually only live moment to moment. That's all we can. We actually live moment to moment. From one moment of experience to the next, we live. That's how we live. Would you agree with that? Yes. So when you look at these three elements, from now on, I'm just going to call them thoughts and sensations, okay? Thoughts means all mind stuff. Sensations mean everything detected by the body and its senses. And incidentally, just for the record, some teachers say that thoughts are actually a subtler aspect of the senses. Verbal thoughts are a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing. Inner visions are a subtler aspect of the sense of seeing. You can have a thought of a lemon, and that's a subtler aspect of the sense of taste and all. So it's basically just the senses. Yeah, yeah. okay, that's fine. But we're still talking basically, you can call them one and call them two, it doesn't matter. What we're talking about here, thoughts and sensations, are objects. Would you agree with that? They're objects. Yes, whether they're subtle or gross, they're objects. Yes, they're objects. And the awareness is the perceiving presence, the subject. Would you agree with that? Yes. So now we have the perceiving presence and the objects it perceives. That's all we have in this moment. That's all there is. Now, the objects, the thoughts and sensations, are always changing. They are a flow of ever-flowing, ever-changing objects. Would you agree with that? Yep. Whereas the perceiving presence, the awareness, is constant. It doesn't change. It's like a mirror that just reflects what's appearing in front of it. Yeah, or the good old movie screen analogy, screen yes, and movie. You yeah. know, I actually tend to regard it as being a two-way mirror. I'll get into that later. But it, mm-hmm. it reflects everything that appears in front of it, but it also actually sees it from its side. It absorbs it as well as reflecting. But we'll get into that. We have thoughts and sensations, which are a flow of objects, and we have the perceiving presence awareness, which is the subject, which is constant. So now... This whole thing is about self-identity. The whole process is to do with self-identity. What am I in essence? Am I this flow of ever-changing objects or am I this perceiving presence? Which one am I? Am I? Since you were born, ever since your, your physical body came into being, every thought and sensation you have has appeared in this presence. Would you agree with that? Yep. Now, do you think you've been here since you were born? Yes. So if you think you've been here since you were born, the only thing that's been here since you were born, because your body mind is constantly changing, the only thing that's been constantly here since you were born is this presence. Mm-hmm. You agree with that? Yep. Okay. So what are you then in all this? Are you the, you are this presence. That's the logical conclusion from this. You are the presence in which the thoughts and sensations appear. Now, once you can fully grok that and get the implications of that, that completely changes everything. Because suddenly the thoughts and sensations, there's just a flow of objects appearing with that which you are. And that which you are, we've already said it's constant. Let's just have a quick investigation of this presence to tease out some of its other properties. This presence is constant, we've said that. It's still. Now, when I say it's still, you would, you'd agree with that straight away, you're nodding your head. Because it's still because, yeah, it's aware of the slightest movement that's happening in it. So it's obviously still. It's silent because it's aware of the smallest sound and the subtlest thought. It's choiceless, obviously choicelessly present because actually it's always there. You don't have to look for it. There it is. You are it. In fact, that's what you are. It's effortless. Of course, it's effortless. It doesn't require any effort. It's here before all things appear. Now, when I say that is when I'm talking about things, we're only talking about our direct experience. So when I say the word things, I'm talking about the thoughts and sensations. That's what I'm talking about. So it's here before all things appear, 
because as soon as you have a thought or sensation, there's awareness of it. Then when they appear, it, of them, it is the seer. I like to rhyme things, excuse me. Then, as they must, they disappear because all thoughts and sensations come and go, they disappear. This is still always here. So this, in fact, is that in which all our thoughts and sensations arise, in which they abide, by which they are spied, and into which they subsume. No holes yet? That's a good analysis of it. Now, let's keep going further. It's pretty obvious that actually this is omnipresent in our experience because actually experience is awareness of thoughts and sensations. Therefore, awareness is omnipresent in our experience. That's a no-brainer. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I think we we can take it farther to having it be omnipresent in all creation, but let's stick to our experience. We will. We we can get there. I'm I'm starting off. (laughs) Yeah, that's further down the track. It's easy to get to, but we we shouldn't jump ahead of ourselves. Because the thing about this kind of investigation is if you don't follow the steps rigorously and start getting ahead of yourself, the brain actually can lose the track. It's actually good to keep going with the... Okay, so... So it's omnipresent. We said now it's omniscient. What I mean by that is it sees all our thoughts and sensations and it's omnipotent. When I say it's omnipotent, what I mean by that is our thoughts and sensations. That's our experiences that any phenomenon, in fact, have no power over it. They come and go in that. So they have no power over it. You'd agree with all those so far? Yes. This is so, so easy. And yet we've already reached the still, silent, serene. I haven't done the pureness and the radiance. So it's still silent and therefore it's serene, right? And it's pure because no thing that appears in it can taint it. Things come and go in it. They don't taint it. It's radiant in that it provides the illumination by which the things that appear in it may be seen or noticed. Would you agree with that? Yes. And it's pristine because no thing that appears in it can degrade it. So now, yes. now, now I'll just go through that, where, where we've got to. The still, silent, serene, pure, radiant, pristine, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent field of awareness in which all things arise, abide, are spied, and subside. Now we, that, so that's where we've got two questions. And when you look at that, that is actually almost a description of the way the absolute is described in a lot of religious traditions. Sure, that's, that's how they came up with those descriptions, you know, based on, yeah, yeah. on their experience that's of what, that. Yeah, with a, such a very simple investigation. And each step follows on from the other logically and is easy to see. Now we'll move on to expanding it to the universal. I'm an easy guy to do this with because, like you, I've been at this since the 60s and I've yeah. been, you know, meditating yeah. for ages and all. But you say this to the average guy on the street and he, he might just say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't experience any such thing. Just as somebody, let's say, who came into a movie theater when the movie was already playing and never saw the screen without movies playing on it might say, I don't know what you're talking about. There's always action and dinosaurs and superheroes and car crashes and all this stuff is always happening. I've never seen anything like what you're referring to. I agree with that. If you just launch some, you met the ordinary person in the street and launch into this, they would say, I don't know yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> that's why people have to be interested in the subject to start with. And they have to be prepared to undertake the investigation, having prepared themselves, being nice and comfortable, quiet, ready to do it. However, I've taken 
various people who've got no spiritual background through this in just talking to them once they've got them mentally prepared for it. And they have seen it just like that. Like that. Yeah. By taking them through this step-by-step process, they've got it. So this is not difficult. I can see how they would. And then, like you said earlier, then starts the project of actually stabilizing and integrating it, which That's is right. long-term That's proposition. Right. It is, because once you fully grok this and you realize that, in essence, you are this pure awareness, okay? Mm-hmm. We have been conditioned ever since we were born that we are, in fact, an object, but with, with lots of different properties. Your name is Colin, you're Christian, you're white, you're a Taurus, you're an Enneagram 9, etc., etc. Layer upon layer of labels on this so-called object that everybody thinks we are, and we've been conditioned to think we are. So to suddenly discover that, in fact, you are just pure awareness, you might understand it, but this burden of labels that you've accumulated will continually come back in and swamp it. And I would say that it's not just a matter of labels. Certainly, yes, we've been told all these things all of our lives, and we've had a million experiences all of our lives. But there's a neurophysiological component to that, which is that all these experiences register as impressions in the nervous system, which I think in the Sanskrit, they call it samskaras. And those impressions are actually chemical and structural changes that have taken place in our nervous system. And so part of the project, which is, I think, it's been there in these ancient philosophies for thousands of years, is to undergo not only a a change in one's attitude or beliefs, but to undergo a sort of thorough, subtle purification or transformation of the of the neurophysiology. I mean, it's been explained in terms of Kundalini and various other models, but the whole mind-body system has to be transformed. You've heard the term neuroplasticity, and they've done studies on people who've been meditating for a long, long time, and they have thicker prefrontal cortex and various other changes in brainwaves. Mm. So we're an instrument through which experience happens, and the instrument gets damaged, we could say, through all the stresses and strains of life. Think of somebody with PTSD from war, and that damage has to be reversed. Spiritual practice can do that. Even the thing you're describing here can do that if it's practiced regularly, I think, and obviously various other practices can do it as well. Well, yes, I fully agree with you, and that's why I say you actually, once you've had the uh, initial awakening, you actually Mm -hmm. have to carry out this. I mean, I recommend that you carry out this investigation at least three times a day, spend about 20 minutes, three times mm-hmm. a day doing this investigation. So this is what and, you do you, as your practice? Yes. Although I don't do quite such a simple investigation. Now I've moved on. Although actually, no, the one I've just taken you through, I do that every morning, actually. Do you but just have, do it in your own mind? You know, you just go through the points that you just went through with me, or do you play a tape of yourself saying these things or what? No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, yeah, I go through it in my own mind. And I've gone to deeper levels now because I've been doing it for so long. I've been basically doing this for 25 years. Well, keep telling us about the whole thing. And and when you get to it, tell us about the deeper levels too. I will. The thing about what you were saying about the samskaras, Mm -hmm. the things that come up that are deeply ingrained, is that you get to the point when you're grounded in this that you just immediately see them as objects appearing in the awareness that you are. So although they continue to come up, this is the same with all conditioning, actually. You can just see that it's just an object appearing in, in that which you are. And therefore, right. it has no power over you. It might keep coming up. It might keep coming up for a long time, but it, it loses its power as long as you stay awake as the awareness in which it appears. And That's eventually, the these things work themselves out and they don't come up anymore. 
That's right. That's right. Because they lose their power because they're not being fed. And after a while, they just they just disappear. That's true. Yeah. And I yeah. believe that actually a, a neurophysiological change has taken place. Whereas once there was, was some agree. kind of impression in the system, that impression yeah, is yeah. gone. So the system is functioning more normally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think this this whole method does actually change the brain itself. You develop new neural pathways. Exactly. And you start seeing things in a different way. So yeah. I'm quite convinced this does this, actually. Yeah, and they're doing um, research on that kind of thing. I mean, there's been a lot of studies. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. So, yeah, so I fully agree with everything you said, and I think this is a method of doing it, and I think mm-hmm. it's a very easy method of doing it because it's very easy to understand the process. There's nothing complicated about it. It requires no dogma or belief systems, and it, you can apply it minute by minute. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about applying it minute by minute. Now, one question I have about this, and maybe you'll get to this when you get to the deeper stuff, but all of this is a form of mental activity. You're recognizing this, you're thinking that. So you're keeping the mind active, but there are deeper levels where the mind could actually settle into complete quiescence, and that would have its unique value as well. Yes, that's true. So if you do this process, by the end of it, the mind is basically finished with all of the day-to-day stuff that it's uh, fills it and you reach the state which is the mind is very quiet i always reach the stage of pure aware nothingness when there's that's all there is it's total quietness you do always yeah that's pretty good (laughs) but i I don't then spend hours in that state i enjoy experiencing the world i mean you don't have to spend hours in the bank getting some money you just go in there for five minutes get the money and then you can spend hours in the market yeah that's true and I'll get to this later, but people talk about stilling the mind to get to this state, whereas I say that awakening actually stills the mind. So yeah, the still mind I, I, is I the outcome. I very much agree with you. Yes, it's a cart before the horse thing, and a lot of people yeah. put the cart before the horse. Yeah. The still mind is the outcome of awakening, uh, but mm-hmm. I'll get to that later. But just quickly on that, once you are identified with pure awareness itself, then all of the Background programs that run in the mind do to do with self-image, to do with the small self altogether, in fact. All those programs that keep running all the time, they all stop running. So the mind immediately becomes quiet because all of this stuff that we thought about ourselves, about the past, about the future, about anything relating to ourselves as an object, the mind actually stops running those programs because mm-hmm. it realizes it's just impure. It, it is that pure awareness. Right. And you're talking about during the practice itself? I'm talking about day-to-day, day-to-day living. All the time it stops running. Yes, yeah. all okay. the time, all the time. I don't think about the future apart from planning things. Right? Uh-huh. I don't worry about the future. I don't wallow in the past. I don't worry about anything. I plan things. I'm a great planner. I love solving problems. I love all that shit. But I don't wobble in the process. I don't think about the process. I don't worry about the future at all. I don't think much about the past, although I, when I do, I think about it fondly. You see what I'm saying? These programs, they just don't run in my mind. In other words, you have really transformed over time your whole mode of functioning. It's become second nature to you now. You don't have to think about it all day long. This is just your natural state. I still spend three periods a day in investigation or yoga nidra or whatever. And for me, they are a total joy, those periods. I love them. I can feel them re-energizing my whole being, actually. Which, well, so you're that, in good so, company, you know, Shankara, the Buddha, many others, Sri Ramakrishna, they all spent time in meditation every day on a regular yeah. basis throughout their lives. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I don't spend hours. I don't go into long samadhis to spend <laughs> and vanish completely because right. I enjoy life. I tell people I like to actually squeeze every drop I can get out of life, yeah. you know, yeah, that's at great. the moment. I've got a bit sidetracked here. 
so we'll get back to where we were. So we've reached this point where we've, I'll just recap, we've got the still, silent, serene, pure, radiant, pristine, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent field of awareness in which all things arise, abide, are spied and subside. We've reached that point. Now, this is purely talking about our direct experience of this moment. That's all we've done. We've analysed our direct experience of this moment. So now we can expand this from this individual experience of, of this moment to the universal. And the way we do that is at this stage, up to now, everything has actually come out of our own direct experience and, and logically looking at that. Now we have to bring a bit of science in because it's been proved that awareness saturates the universe. Now, when I say that, I use various examples. The easiest, not the easiest, but for me, the most cogent example is entanglement. You know about entanglement? Quantum entanglement. So entanglement the up particle, the down particle, they immediately switch, even though they could be on the other side of the galaxy and so on. Yeah. Now, to put it in layman's terms, subatomic particles become entangled in such a way that each one of the pair is aware of what is occurring for or to the other, its partner, irrespective of how far apart they are. Now, just to poke back a little bit, a physicist might say, well, the word aware is too anthropomorphic. We don't know if they're aware of each other, but we don't even know how this works. But somehow or other, when one of them changes its polarity, the other does so instantly. And I don't think they have a ready answer as to how that happens. No, well, that's right. They won't say they're aware. But logically speaking, how could one possibly know what change when the other one changes it wasn't aware of what was happening to the other one it's just logically logically it's a cogent argument yeah but then the the interesting question is that it happens instantaneously even if the two particles are light years apart so that's you know why that happens why that happens is because they exist in the same field of awareness there is actually no separation between them i would agree i mean i think this is an anomaly that physicists should really should make them look deeper into the mechanics of consciousness that's right. Yes. The second example I've used is the fact that electrons change their behavior when they're observed. Photons. From, from waveform electrons. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle? No, no. Have you ever heard of the double slit experiment? Yeah, the two slit experiment. Those are photons, yeah, well, aren't they, going through and they either no, are electrons. particles or they're waves. It doesn't matter which particles they are. Okay, they're, you they're say they're protons, I say they're electrons. It doesn't matter. <laughs> All right, matter. we'll look it up later. These, these subatomic particles change their behavior from a waveform to a particle form when they're being observed. So the only way they can do that is if they're aware of being observed. There's no other logical explanation. It's, if they don't know they're being observed, then they wouldn't change their behavior. Yeah. I agree that the, the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is very important for understanding consciousness. And I don't know, again, if we can say that if the photon or electron, if you will, <laughs> is actually aware that it's being observed or somehow so the, the observation collapses the wave function. But anyway... The reason I'm hemming and hawing is a little bit is that sometimes physicists really pull their hair out when they hear spiritual people co-opting quantum mechanics and so on in order to explain spiritual principles and butchering quantum mechanics in the process. I agree. Although David Bohm did. You've heard of David Bohm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a bunch of physicists who are on board with this stuff. He talked about electrons in a plasma. Each electron behaves as if, this is his words, behaves as if it is aware of what the other trillions of electrons in that plasma are doing. He actually uses the word aware. This Mm -hmm. is David Bohm. 
And David Bohm uh, maintains that consciousness actually pervades the whole universe. He's the guy who came up with the hard problem. That was his phraseology, the hard problem of consciousness. I don't think it was his because he he wouldn't have any problem with it. The hard problem of consciousness is trying to define consciousness in a purely physical way. Actually. Yeah, figuring out how the heck it, it arises from brain functioning and so on. Right, but he wouldn't have any problem with its arising because as far as he's concerned, it, it pervades the whole universe. This is David Bohm. He, oh, right. He's the one who hung out with Krishnamurti a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got you. I was thinking of David Chalmers. I'm sorry. He's the one who came David, up with the hard yeah, problem. Yeah, David Chalmers. I've yeah. written about him too. I, I wrote to him actually about the hard problem of consciousness. Oh, cool. Because basically they've got it all arse over tip. Let's let that go for a moment. Yeah. Don't want to get controversial here. Let's just go back to my supposition go that consciousness transfuses the whole universe. Okay. The two examples I've given to me are quite cogent, but a scientist might not think they're cogent. So let's just move up the chain a bit mm-hmm. to single cells. Okay. Now a single cell will change its behavior when the environment in which it exists changes. And that is because it is aware of the change in environment. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. Okay, there we are. Good. We've got awareness at single cell. We might not have it at an atomic level, but we've got it at the single cell level. I'm not even refuting or disputing the atomic oh, no, level. No, no, I'm just a... saying let's, let's just be a little yeah, bit yeah, yeah. hypothetical here. That's fine. That's fine. I have been expecting people to say that. You're the first person to actually put it to words, but I've been expecting you to come. So if you go up the chain from single cells to... Well, let's say let's say let's say white corpuscles in the blood. Now they attack viruses that invade your body. Well, the only way they can do that is because they can become aware of the viruses in the body. Would you yep. agree with that? Yeah. If whichever way you look at it, as you go up through the whole chain of existence from subatomic particles, which the physicists might not agree to, but all the way up to us, our human bodies, awareness mm-hmm. saturates the whole of the universe. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, and I would even up the ante and say that the whole universe is awareness, that it's, there's nothing other than yes, consciousness yes, appearing yes, as... Consciousness. <laughs> yes, 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 that's right, I agree. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we've now said that awareness saturates the universe, and in fact, I like to define awareness as being consciousness when it's still aware of the movements taking place within it. In terms of our direct experience, it's consciousness when it's still, aware of the thoughts and sensations that appear in it. Would you agree with that as a definition? Sure. Okay. So at the universal level, we said it saturates the universe. So this is the universal aware stillness in which all things, now all things in existence consist of energy, which means they're in motion. Would you agree with that? Yes. Now, all motion arises in and from stillness. Do you agree with that? Yep. All motion exists in a field of stillness. Yeah. It can be seen relative to that stillness and finally subsides back into stillness. Yeah. And I might add to it that dynamism and silence kind of interchange or interact in a way that there's silence within dynamism and dynamism within silence. Because they're actually the same essence, just yeah. in, two different, in two different forms, but there is no separation. They're all consciousness at rest or in motion. Yes. I was trying to think of a Gita verse where Krishna says something about he who sees action in inaction and inaction in action, he is a yogi or he is established or something yeah. like that. And it's, it's actually two ways of, of seeing the same thing. There's dynamism in 
silence and there's silence in the dynamism of creation. The two are kind of two sides of the same coin. They are, exactly. Sides of the same, sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we're just carrying on now with the same investigation, but we've, been, we've upped the ante now we're in the universal, okay? Yeah. So we now have the universal aware stillness in which all things arise, abide, are spied, and subside. Once again, this is still by definition, therefore silent and serene. It's pure in that the movements, the things that occur in it, the movements or series of movements that occur in it, don't actually taint it in any way. They just occur in it. They arise, abide, and then subside back into it. It's radiant in the way that it provides the illumination by which these movements may be seen or noticed. And it's pristine in the same way. Nothing degrades it. None of these movements degrade it. It's omnipresent because it saturates the universe. It's omniscient by definition. It's the aware stillness in which all things arise. It's omnipotent in that no thing that arises in it has any power. Let's do that last one. It's omnipotent in that no thing that arises in it has any power. In other words, it has the upper hand. Nothing has any power of it. Nothing changes in it. Things come and go in it, but it is it is the, the container of all things, but they do not change it in any way. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Because if so it now, changed, then it would be a thing. <laughs> and if yeah, it were a right. thing, then we wouldn't have a foundation to the universe. That's right. Because the thing is by definition localized and relative, and it can't be the all-pervading. That's right. If you look at it now, we've reached exactly the same point that we've reached by investigating experience. We've reached Mm -hmm. still, silent, serene, pure, radiant, pristine, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, but in this case, ocean of consciousness in which all things arise, abide, are spied, and subside. Here's a poem for you. One unbounded ocean of consciousness in motion. Yeah, 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 that's right. Now, from that, once you've realized that, and you realize that you actually, we are purely emanations of that, expressions of this consciousness. Not only are we expressions of this consciousness, but we're also instruments of this consciousness in that, Every single thought and sensation we experience appears in that as well as appears in consciousness itself. So consciousness experiences the universe through us, and there is no separation between any of us. We are all just consciousness. In essence, we are all pure consciousness. And the outcome of that, once you investigate that fully, there's always more discoveries to be made because what you're looking at or investigating is the infinite, and you're investigating it with the finite. That's the finite mind. You never run out of things to discover. Living from and as that, which happens as you ground yourself in that by continually rediscovering that, and finally brainwashing yourself, you have to brainwash yourself. There is something to that. The whole study of Vedanta, for instance, or Jnana Yoga, is you ingrain these understandings so deeply that they become second nature. There are auxiliary practices and all that can help you do that, but that's essentially what that path is accomplishing. They actually become new samskaras, but good samskaras. They become so part of your being, you can't look at the world without looking through them. They become second nature. They don't require you to do the um, Ospensky practice of remembering that you are that all the time. You don't have to do that because you are that and What you have to remember, or what is a trigger to the fact that you've lost your connection with that for a small amount of time, is when any mental suffering occurs, 
or when you cause suffering to any other being, that should be a wake-up call to the fact that you are falling asleep again. Because mm-hmm. when you're awake, there is no separation. And when there's no separation, there's compassion's not really the right word. I mean, it's just there's oneness, okay? If you upset somebody else and you know you've done it, and it's been caused by your lack of awareness, you actually feel that. You actually feel that you've done something. And you won't do that while you stay awake. You only do that when you fall asleep and start to misidentify. Yeah, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Um, Yes, that's right. So, I mean, for instance, I was playing a a game. My son's here. We played this fantasy ball game called Talisman the other day. And I was playing with him. And I got very near the end. And we were both just about to win. And I had two spells, which I used on him, which completely robbed him of all his power. I went up and won. (laughs) And I'm very competitive, so I love to win. But I felt bad about it. I did actually feel bad about it about doing that to him in such a brutal way, you know. That's well, a very example, I, which I was thinking of earlier when you first brought this up, is look at what we're doing to the environment of the world yeah, yeah. and to the forests and the animals and, yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. if we were, as a species, as humanity, if we were awake mm. to a high degree mm. anyway, we mm. couldn't possibly be doing that. That's the right. world would be a heavenly place, really. That's right. So that's, yeah. that is the way to actually overcome environmental de- degradation is to help as many people awaken as you can and to awake, stay awake yourself. Yep. And it happened by itself then. There'd be it no would. more wars. It doesn't mean that somebody's not going to invent a better solar panel or whatever, but the fundamental appreciation of everything yeah, yeah. as, as the divine yeah. and how mm-hmm. you just would not, you know, you're not going to cut God's fingers off. That's one of the side effects of awakening. So when, I mean, I live in a very beautiful environment. When you go outside and look at the environment, if you're not identified as a separate object in a universe of objects, in which case your mind is completely full of these filters, self-interest, whatever, whatever. They're f- it's full of self filters that have been installed by the small egoic self. But when those are removed, suddenly the world is a very much brighter, more wonderful, alive place because mm-hmm. you are seeing it as it is rather than seeing it through this egoic filter. Yeah. I forget where it is in the Bible. They speak of seeing through a glass darkly, and then later yeah. on the glass is clear. Yeah. Nearly everybody. If you are identified as being a separate object, an ego, then you see everything through that dark glass of the ego. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you awaken and realize that this is not the case, then that it completely vanishes. However, it still comes down again when you misidentify. Yeah, we'll keep coming back to that theme because obviously it's not snap your fingers, you're done. There is no, con- no. continual yeah. opportunity for refinement yeah. and clarification yeah, and yeah, purification yeah. and so on. Yeah, yeah. yeah and purification is an interesting one. For me, being pure, all that means is having a mind that's still and one-pointed enough to follow a stream of investigation without getting sidetracked by anything else. It's got nothing to do with moral behaviour or or being good or anything. It's purely about having a mind. We'll get to moral behaviour and being good in a minute, but (laughs) let's get on to moral behaviour and whatever. Sure. Well, it's another one of those cart and horse situations because obviously one can only act according to one's level of consciousness. And if the level of consciousness is quite polluted and overshadowed and lost, then you're going to act accordingly. You're not going to act like some kind of saint. But then again, we have a certain amount of free will. We have some wiggle room and we can actually, to a certain extent, we can choose to engage in things that lead us toward the light or deeper into darkness. And if you're, you know, spending your time mistreating people and hanging out in bars and strip joints and just indulging in trying to gain 
satisfaction through those kinds of sensory indulgences, then you're going to be creating more of those samskaras we talked about earlier. And that's why in just about every tradition, they speak of some form of purification as a valuable asset on the spiritual path because a sattvic mind can realize the self more easily than a tamasic mind. So that's in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. And that's been the kind of classic path of all, all, virtually all the religions, actually. They all have these moral rules and regulations that you should follow. I tend to think, though, that as long as you're misidentified as a separate object, then this this is going to be a very hard path to follow because you're actually trying to do things that go against the grain of your egoic self. Whereas if you can wake up and then nurture your awakening by continuing investigation, by staying awake, once you're awake, then these negative behaviours basically vanish spontaneously because the (laughs) awareness itself never puts a step wrong. Awareness itself, consciousness itself does not put a foot wrong. And as long as you are identified with and as that, then you can just live spontaneously. And if you do put a foot wrong, i.e. you cause yourself or anybody else suffering, you will immediately know it. Because yeah. it will cause mental suffering. And you can use this as a, being a Dharma bell, a wake-up call to reinvestigate and discover that you're a consciousness. It's true. You get smacked. Yes, yes, you do. You can feel it, actually. It's like instant karma, in fact. And it gets more and more fine-tuned. You can do things that wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever 50 years ago. That's true. Like, if, you know, if you're wearing a dark suit, for instance, you can walk through a coal mine and you'll look about the same. But if you're wearing a white suit, then you can't go anywhere near one or you'll get splotches all over it. So mm-hmm. as purity grows, one has to... Well, here, let me quote Pabasambhava. He said, although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So here was an enlightened guy who was at the same time being careful, you know, scrutinizing. The thing about that, he said his attention to karma was as fine as and his actions. From, I, I would, yeah. I would agree with that, but just from a slightly different viewpoint. I mean, I I don't spend all my day remi- staying awake as awareness, reminding myself of that I am that and trying to make sure I don't do anything. Well, I don't do any of that shit. No, me neither. I just live spontaneously. But if I put a foot wrong, I know it. Yeah, exactly. It, it, yeah, that's right. And that is that attention to karma. That's the vigilance, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you see a a lot of teachers neglect that point and get themselves in trouble. Yeah, that's true. Indulging in things and then actually using alibis such as, oh, I'm not doer. God is the doer. And, you know, God happens to want to have sex with these young girls or whatever. (laughs) Uh, That's an interesting, a whole interesting subject that actually, I mean, because I agree with you thoroughly. However, in a way, you sometimes you could. I'm just thinking about Sogdra, not Sogdra Rinpoche. Trogim Champa? Yeah, yeah. think about him, right? Now, who, who died you know, of alcoholism he, in his 40s? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and he slept with many of his women followers, right? Yeah. Many of them. And uh, I saw an interview where the, the husband of one of his women followers who he was sleeping with asked the husband, the interviewer asked the husband, he said, Aren't you jealous? And my husband said, Yeah, I'm jealous. He said, He said, But I'm not jealous of her. I'm not jealous of her sleeping with him. I'm jealous of her because she can get nearer to him than I can. He was very jealous because she could get completely close to him, whereas he was on the outer. And, you know, at his funeral, Jim Trumpa's funeral, there were people flew in from all over the world. There were famous Rinpoches and lamas. And he was very highly respected. And his teachings are beautiful. So it's difficult necessarily judge a book by its cover in all this. 
Yes. It is, but call me judgmental, but I just feel like someone who is a an alcoholic who, who dies of alcoholism in his 40s or who takes all kinds of drugs and does all kinds of weird things, that to me is not the ideal I'm aiming for in life. You know, if that's the state, if that's the state of enlightenment, I think I'll do something else with my life. I can understand that. But actually, <laughs> this is interesting because Ramakrishna was asked a similar question. One of his devotees said, Oh, my guru, his guru was a woman. He said, My guru is a woman and she's drinking and she's having sex and she's just generally, you know, living in an immoral life. So, you know, what should I do? Because they have regard the guru disciple relationship very sacredly in India, you know, to him, this was a big thing. And Ramakrishna said, well, are her teachings beneficial to your spiritual life? And the guy said, oh, yeah, they're fine. They're good, you know. And Ramakrishna said, well, don't worry about it. Just follow the teachings and forget about the person. No, that's so, a good point. I can agree with that. Yeah. And there might be other teachers who have even better teachings, but you can look back on yes, a relationship. Right, yeah, you can look back on a relationship with a teacher like that, and even though they had foibles, be grateful for what you derive from it. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how I feel about Satyananda. Satyananda has now has been exposed as having basically a harem of Western women but <laughs> maybe treated very badly. Which, unfortunately, is sort of the rule rather than the exception these days. I've got no respect for him in that respect at all. However, the teachings, the Yoga Nidra, the Kitten, yeah, the Hatha Yoga, you know, it's beautiful. And yeah. I, it's an interesting question. But my, from the point of view of morality and behaviour, this, once again, for me, it's a bit about the cart before the horse, like you were saying yeah. earlier on. When you wake up, then you naturally become compassionate because there's no separation. You naturally don't cling. I don't like the word detachment very much because it makes you feel like you're just, you know, like doing, doing this. You don't cling to things. Okay? Yeah, you're not gripped. You don't cling. So you naturally become detached in that way. The thing about attachment and detachment, for me, you get to the stage where you love everything in the world so much that you become totally attached to everything. I'm not detached. I'm attached to everything. Another way of thinking about it is, to use a simple analogy, let's say you were Elon Musk. You have $300 billion. And you know your accountant tells you, well, you lost $5 billion today because the stock market went down. It's like, all right, whatever. Get on with my day. But let's say you were, you know, obviously you're for a poor man. You have $20 in the bank. Gaining or losing five bucks is a big deal. So I think when the inner fulfillment becomes really rich, then you can move among the senses and among the experiences of life. And you, you just have equanimity because gains and losses on the relative level are just not that impactful on your, that's true. your that's inner true. fulfillment. That, that's, yeah. You're not clinging. Yeah. Not exactly. Clinging you, you don't right, need to right. cling because you, you're content. Right. Santosh, contentment. Yeah, the way I was putting it is just another way of looking at it. Once you fall in love with the universe and everything in it, then if anything vanishes from your realm of existence, it doesn't leave a hole because you're still surrounded by that. There's you nothing. Are that. Yeah, you are that. So that whatever goes, it comes and goes. It comes and goes. But it doesn't leave a hole because there's no separation. You know. So. Yeah. But, but basically, that's what you're saying is in just in a different way. I don't so, know who said it, but you know that phrase, for men may come and men may go, but I go on forever. It goes on forever. That it's, goes yeah. on forever. That is all there is. Yeah, so we said that detachment and compassion automatically come out of uh, awakening. A love of one's fellow man and love of God, that automatically comes out of awakening, and so on and so forth. All of these, all of these qualities which a lot of spiritual traditions say you have to foster to awaken, they are the outcome of awakening. 
I totally agree. So awakening is the horse and those things are the cart. That's right. So that's why with my approach, you start off with this very simple investigation and you stick with it and it produces a very simple awakening, which you then have to nurture. And the more you nurture and foster that, the more these other qualities will naturally come up. Yeah. And at the same time, one still has choices to make in life. Should I have this big bowl of ice cream on top of pizza or should I, I'm pretty full already? Should I cool it? You know, whatever. That's a stupid example. But should I say this to this person because I'm angry with them or should I just refrain from expressing it and things will probably go better? You know, we have choices like that, which have consequences. With regard to that, I would quote what St. Augustine said. He said, do whatever you like as long as you do it with love. There you go. It's so simple. I mean, it's just so simple. To me, the word love means no separation. That's actually what it means, no separation. Once you realize no separation, then there is only love. That's all it is. Let me ask you some questions. A bunch of questions came in, so we'll probably jump around a little bit. This is from Brian Lund in Colorado Springs. He said, I've heard many say that ego death experience of psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, to be analogous to the experience of spiritual awakening. Maybe I never took enough mushrooms, but nothing they did to me ever came close to the experience or the profundity of my initial awakening. So he must have had an initial awakening off of drugs. Comments on comparing the two? Yeah, I would agree with it. I'm thinking mainly about my mescaline experiences here. They were very beautiful. And they produced the side effects of awakening, like things like seeing the world as being much more bright and vivid and alive. I was talking about that. That's what happens on mescaline. So they produced a lot of the side effects of awakening, but they didn't have the same profound effect on my being. They didn't completely remove that burden, that self-imposed burden, which had been imposed by the non-existent small self, which when you awaken completely, that just falls off completely. I mean, that's what I call enlightenment. For me, enlightenment is you you have been lightened of that burden of non-existent, that non-existent burden which you've been carrying all your life, which is all to do with the small self and the ego. And when you wake up, that actually just vanishes completely as long as you stay awake. Yeah. And that didn't happen on mescaline, no. But a lot of the side effects did. I would say that the best experience someone could possibly have on hallucinogens, enlightenment, just to use that word for simplicity's sake, will be better all the time, but it won't be like a hallucinogenic experience all the time, and you won't be incapacitated in any way. But if you could compare them side by side, you would say, I'll take this, I'll take the enlightenment state, rather than oh, yeah. the best thing that yeah. drugs could ever do for me. That's true. The thing about being incapacitated is once you're awake, then you solve problems, but day-to-day worldly problems, much more easily than yeah. when you're Water awake because the mind is just ready and it's not overburdened with all the other stuff shit it used to run it. They're ready for the, and when the problem arises, like that, yeah. like that, like that. It actually makes life much easier to handle than exactly. Cleaning. There's a verse that, which is yoga is skill in action. And by yoga, he meant union. It produces skill in action. It does. And so that's something for people to consider if they think, and I've heard you say this too, you know, people might say, I'm so busy. How can I spend three sessions of 20 minutes every day, you know, just lying there with my eyes closed or something? But you do that or you do an effective spiritual practice and you find that you're more efficient in your activities. So you actually yeah. get more done. You don't fritter away your time with, yeah. you know, scatterbrained incoherence so you end up with more time and maybe you don't even need to sleep as much at night so you have more time that way also 
actually, yes, that's true. Both of those are completely true. You, you get so much rest and relaxation out of those three 20-minute sessions that you can literally afford to have an hour's less sleep. Yeah. So you can get the hour immediately like that. And then on top of what that, immediately what you said becomes apparent and you get more time because you become much more efficient, much better at solving things. I'm sure everyone's experienced being in a foggy mental state where their mind is just not very clear and they're at work or something and they're just not getting much done. It's hard to get anything yeah. done. And then you contrast that with a time when you're feeling really clear and focused mm. and coherent mm. and you just get 10 times more done than you did in the yeah, foggy yeah. state. Yeah, yeah. I wrote an article about my books called The Elasticity of Time. Mm, and uh, once you're awake, it seems that you can get an amazing amount done And when you look back at it, it almost seems like a miracle that that they happened, but it just happens. Everything just happened. And then when you suddenly find you're not getting much done, it's because you've actually fallen asleep again. You're misidentified and your mind's just spinning around, you know. Do less and accomplish more was a phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like the uh, Taoist Wu Wei or whatever, you know, action through non-action. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay, here's another question. This is from Tyre Sukar in Philadelphia. It seems not everyone gets enlightened, even if they meditate for decades. Is it a luck or a karma thing? Is it worth the time committed? From my point of view, it depends how you define meditation. If you're just sitting watching the breath um, or doing one of these uh, rote activities, which is mainly designed to just quieten the mind but not do anything else, then you might get a quiet mind. You might get more peaceful, but that you won't. And they won't necessarily awaken you unless you take the next step. For me, investigation is much more important than having a quiet mind. Because if you have an investigative process that works and is easy to follow and your mind can follow, the mind has to accept it and see it, then basically that eventually, if you keep following that and keep doing it, it will change you completely. Whereas if you just meditate to get a still mind and have a peaceful time then sure that might happen and it will make your life better but it won't change your being meditation has to be combined with insight as as you know i agree yeah i think both are important but for me the investigation is the most important thing you need to discover that you are pure awareness and by that discovery and by that repeated discovery you slowly change you convince yourself you convince your mind that it is not you you are that which sees it. I mean, this is where Descartes got it wrong, you know, Descartes. Descartes started with this, I know nothing, and then he discovered that we are the body and the mind, and he also discovered there is innate awareness of the body and mind. He said all of these things, but then he had to come to a conclusion. Out of the three things, he chose the mind. He said, therefore, I am the mind. I think, therefore, I am. So he completely came to the wrong conclusion out of the three. He could have said, I am, therefore I think, and you might have been yes, more that's on the mark. Exactly what, that's, that's exactly how I put it. I am, therefore I think, yes. Because yeah. being is more fundamental than thinking. Silence yes, is so, more fundamental than activity. Yes. So he started with the investigation. He, that's what he did. He did the investigation. He did the same what I did. Unfortunately, he came to the wrong conclusion. So when you're investigating, you might need a few pointers along the way to get you started. That's all I'm ever trying to do is provide pointers along the way to help people get started. Once you get started, go for it. It's Each one of us has a different way of looking at things and different investigative methods, and we all need to go for it and come to the, the conclusions that we come to. 
But as a general rule, I would say, quoting Shankara here, actually, that it takes a certain mental clarity to do the jnana yoga or investigation method. And if you find that that's difficult for you because your mind just isn't clear enough, then there are methods for getting to, the, to that point of clarity. Karma yoga, you know, alternating action with deep meditation will bring a certain clarity. And, and then later on, perhaps, you'll be able to pursue jnana yoga. And as the Gita says, knowledge is the greatest purifier, and that can be extremely potent. But it's not something that everybody is, you can disagree with me, but it's not something everybody is necessarily suited for at the outset. Yeah, I agree with you. It doesn't suit everybody. But I I think it suits a lot more people than people have thought. Because if you go through this process that we went through at the beginning, starting Uh off with this moment of experience, that simple investigation, forget about the universal, just go through this simple experience, simple investigation. That was a very simple step-by-step investigation. And I maintain that anybody can do that. Literally, anybody can do that. I think you have some audio recordings of that that people can download, right? And they can just do their yoga nidra and listen to you taking them through the steps. Yeah, yeah, I do. do. Okay, so that's all on your website? I've given you various links. I think you did. I'll, I'll make sure that those links are in the show notes. Yeah. As long as people got my email address, if, if they if they can't find them, they can just email me. I'll I'm put that to... on your page too. Yeah, because I'm happy to talk to anybody. Good. Okay, here's another question. This is from Jean Rousel, or Jen Rousel in New Zealand. She asks, Recently I feel clearly that I am living a dream. Feels like the end of 70 years of searching. Feels great. I see the proof of this by observing everything happening around me coming together as if putting a jigsaw together with no effort. This ease is like being in perfect tune with myself and my soul journey. So it's not really a question, but it's a nice, uh, nice report. Yeah, it's lovely. This is lovely. I can fully appreciate what she's saying. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Beautiful. And 70 years of searching. We don't want to give the impression, like some other guy was asking earlier, what if you don't get it after decades of meditation? Let's just say decades of spiritual search. I think it can be, see if you agree with this, it can be a bit of a hang-up for people to think of some glorious end point that they are supposed to reach. And I think it can always give you the feeling that you're still going for it. You haven't reached it. It's out there on the horizon someplace. If you define enlightenment that way, it can kind of trip you up. But as you were saying earlier, just realize it's here now and enjoy that. Yeah, and then there will be continual refinement and development as you as you go along. I know I was that way for a long time, too. It's like, oh, God, if I don't get enlightened, I'm just going to die. <laughs> yeah, I just kind of relaxed. And just- <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay. The same thing happened to me. I took all those years with Satchananda or with Ramakrishna and whatever, and I, I got lovely states of peace and trance and whatever, but I never felt I was awake until I ran into Gandhiji. He just said, stop and look within and see what you are. And that, that, that's the method of self-inquiry. Yeah. And I've just refined that slightly into, turn it to, into turning it into a simple investigation, but it's still self-inquiry. Mm-hmm. Everything boils down to identification. What are you in essence? It all boils down to that. Once you've discovered your essence, then it's all over Red Rover. As long as you stay with that essence, you have to be vigilant to that. Yeah, which takes culture and time. Gangaji's teacher, Papaji, was famous for saying, give up the search. And uh, I think some people misinterpreted that in a way to think, all right, what the heck, I'll just kind of rest on my laurels, I'm good. But I don't think he hopefully meant 
that you're all totally enlightened just as you are. Well, firstly, he said that to people who were sitting in his living room. And if yeah. they were kind of looking for something else, he'd say, hey, I'm here. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was kind of saying, once you've seen it, stop looking elsewhere. This is it. You've seen it. It's true. If you keep searching when you've seen the truth, then it's soon going to be obscured by others. This method doesn't produce, certainly initially, but it, it doesn't produce amazing powers or ecstatic experiences or whatever, you know. And if you're continually searching for those objects, like spiritual materialism does, then it will take you away from your own presence. Ty from Philadelphia, who asked that earlier question, is wondering if you recommend a meditation style or a regimen. I guess he probably means in addition to the yoga nidra you've already described. Do you recommend anything else? This simple investigation that we did at the beginning is the foundation of all my books. I give it in the appendices of all the books. I recommend that you do that at least once a day. I do yoga nidra, but forget about yoga nidra. That's a relaxation technique I employ. I do lots of different things, actually. (laughs) I have a great love and joy of spiritual practice, and I get high on it. I get high. I'm a bit of a bliss junkie. Anyway. That aside, apart from the investigation, which I recommend you carry out every day first thing in the morning before anything else, to ground yourself in the fact that you are the awareness in which everything appears, there's a very simple meditation technique that I use sometimes. I think it must be the simplest meditation of all. You just sit or lie totally comfortably and you notice that you are aware of your thoughts and sensations. That's all you do. Now, when I say notice, the word notice means become aware of. So what you're doing in this situation is you are becoming aware of awareness. And that's all you do. You don't do anything else. You just notice. Are you also sort of noticing, okay, I feel my stomach and I feel my... No, 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 you don't notice anything. You just notice that you're aware of your thoughts and sensations. That's Mm -hmm. all you do. And you just stay with that noticing. And as soon as you start to follow a thought or sensation, you will realize that you're no longer noticing it. So you come back to the noticing. You're just noticing you're aware of your thoughts. And that grounding of spending that time just in awareness of awareness, what happens is a couple of things happen. The main thing with thoughts is that they slowly start to die down because they're not being followed. So they slowly start to decrease. And just becoming aware of awareness, which is what you are, that's your essence. The practice of awareness of awareness nurtures that seeing that you are awareness itself because you can see quite clearly what's going on in this moment of experience. There's thoughts and sensations and there's the awareness of those. That is all that's going on. So you're becoming aware of awareness. And it's a very simple practice. The only thing about that practice can be that you can lose time because uh, once the thoughts get very quiet, you can lose all sense of time. Because time is noticed by what occurs in it. When there's nothing happening, there is no time. So you might get stuck there for two hours, you mean? You could. You could. I've sometimes, oh, God, an hour's gone without yeah. thinking I'd just do it for 20 minutes. And suddenly time's gone because I wasn't aware of time. Well, that sounds good. They say a watched pot never boils. That's because it's boring watching a pot. But if something's fulfilling, the time just flies by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because the awareness, awareness of awareness actually nourishes the seeing of awareness itself and the fact that you are awareness. It grounds it for you. Yeah. And it's such a simple practice. Okay, yeah. good. Here's another question from Michael Moran in London. Does the experience of samadhi necessarily mean one will be realized in this lifetime? That's a difficult question in that there's many different types of samadhi. But for me, if you awaken to the realization that you are pure awareness, 
then that's all you need to do. The discussion of the different samadhis can be quite technical and people have lots of this. Oh, there's so many different samadhis, but there's no the samadhi where you vanish completely, you become unconscious. And in fact, Ramakrishna used to fall into that state very easily and he didn't like it because in that state you have no experience of the world or of anything. He wanted to enjoy life with his devotees and enjoy, just enjoy himself, Ramakrishna. He would bang himself on the top of the head like, Come down, come down. <laughs> going into the nervous capital samadhi, which people spend lifetimes trying to achieve. The state that Ramana Maharshi talks about is Sahaj Samadhi, which means just living spontaneously from awareness itself. So that is certainly self-realization. I remember hearing a story about Vivekananda where he was sitting in samadhi outdoors under a tree or something, and his face was black with mosquitoes, and he was completely yeah. oblivious that all these yeah. mosquitoes were biting him. Yeah. So it's, it's possible yeah. to enter a, a state that's so interdirected that you're... And even Ramana Maharshi, when he, was, when he first got yeah, to yeah. Tiruvannabalai, he sat in some bank basement or something and insects chewing on his legs and he was oblivious to that. But obviously those are rare and special states. But even the, some of the stuff you described today in, in the practice you took us through, those are types of samadhi. Um, of a deeper, more settled more interdirected state. That's a type of samadhi. I would just say to this fellow that there are temporary samadhis. And then as you were saying, there's all time samadhi, which basically just means that pure awareness has been stabilized and you enjoy it while you're functioning in activity, no matter what you're doing. Yeah, that's true. Nervi Kelpa, I guess they would say. Okay, here's another one. This is from uh, Jenneth Joy in India. I feel like I'm stuck on the spiritual path. I know what I'm not, but don't know what or who I am. Is there a stage like this? How can one move forward from there? There is a process, as you know, in, in the Indian tradition called deti-neti, where you basically say, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not that. And in theory, eventually you find out what you are because you, you negate everything and what's left is what you are which is a valid, it's a valid technique, but it's, it's uh, quite hard. I mean, just think of how many different things you've got to negate. I mean, you can spend lifetimes at it. Whereas with my approach, this particular investigation that I recommend, you very quickly come to the realisation that awareness is the basis in which thoughts and sensations appear. I mean, that's pretty obvious, actually. In fact, I was going to call my first book The Bleeding Obvious. That, that was going to be the title of it. I decided for a few reasons reasons not to do that but i don't want to put people off however if she does this investigation her own direct experience starting from modern experiences the uh, awareness of thoughts and sensations and then going through the whole through each element and deciding whether she is that or not she in this you only have to negate two things thoughts and sensations not everything in existence and when you negate those two what's left there's just the awareness of those that's all there is now if those two and the awareness is the only thing that has been constant since you were born. Therefore, if you think you've been here since you were born, which I'm sure she does, she must be the awareness and not the thoughts and sensations of bearing in it. It's so simple. Where does she want to go from there? I would say probably where she wants to go from there is for that awareness to be more vivid, more clear, more bright, so that it's not so easily overshadowed by things. Because if it were more full and yeah. clear, then yeah. there would be a sense of self-knowledge and one would notice yes, what works. one is. So for that fullness and clearness to come, she has to 
keep doing the investigation because mm-hmm. her, her own mind or her own conditioning, her samskaras, mm-hmm. are crowding in on top of that and they're actually continually obscuring it. She might see it and then immediately it's gone like that all the time. Yeah. So she has to keep with the investigation. Yeah. And, you know, I'm quoting a lot of Gita verses today, but there's that great verse which says, no effort is lost and no obstacle exists. Even a little of this dharma removes great fear. So it's not possible to get stuck forever. You might feel stuck for a while, but I think if one sincerely wants this and makes sincere efforts to progress, it's going to work. You know, seek and you shall find. You won't be stuck. You'll move along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, that lady yeah, who yeah. said she's been on the path for 70 years and is just feeling wonderful or something. Like that. It, it, yeah. it really pays off. Yeah, I, I regard myself as being very fortunate, actually, to have actually run into all this, you know, I mean, just... Yeah, me too. Saved my life, really. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I've had emails from pe- people who've actually literally said that being reminded and returning to the fact that they are pure awareness has actually saved their life. Yeah. So, yeah. It's very powerful. It is. All right. So are there some things that you you really like to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I mean, the main thing, I think, is the fact that we haven't talked a lot about living as an instrument of that, which we all are because we are literally expressions of consciousness. All of our thoughts and sensations appear in that as well as to our own mind. That awareness is like a mirror in that it it reflects everything that appears in it, and the mind looks at that and picks out the things that it thinks are important. But I liken it to a two-way mirror. Not only is it reflective, but it's also absorbed by that. That experiences everything through us. So uh, once once you start living as an instrument of that, then really this changes life quite dramatically because a lot of paths talk about denying oneself, being ascetic, Whereas for me, I am an instrument through which that can enjoy its own manifestation, which is Mm -hmm. the creation. So every piece of joy that comes through this mind-body and that this mind-body can help other people experience also, all that joy goes into that consciousness that we are instruments of. So for me, the creation of joy for myself and for as many other people as I can point towards their joy, that's joy, this is the purpose of life. The purpose of life is joy. And that purely comes from being an instrument of that. Oh, I totally agree. I couldn't have said it better. So people might think, well, that sounds great. How do I feel that way? How do I do that? I don't feel like I'm an instrument of that. I mean, how do I get to where Colin is? It all comes from where we first started. Once you purely, fully realize that the awareness is your essence, then the joy, which is innate in awareness itself, the joy and peace and love, which is innate in consciousness itself, actually bubbles up from within. So it's an internal process. It's not anything you can find externally. It's purely internal. But that joy is never missing once you awaken, it just has to be re-accessed by reawakening when you fall asleep. That's the continual investigation, the continual waking up again. Well, that's the other thing about doing the three practices a day. Each one becomes a joyful experience. You come out of it full of joy. Spiritual right. practice is not a chore. It should no. be enjoyable yeah. and you know, both in and of itself and the consequences of it. Yeah. At least that's been yeah. my experience. And I, yeah. yours too. You, you sound like you're, like you said, you're sort of a 
spiritual practice junkie. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm very one-pointed in that I'm only actually following one area. You know, I'm yeah. not searching around, following lots of different paths. But within that, I have developed lots of different practices which I follow, and they just come through that investigation and through insights and whatever. I have one practice which involves lying down and actually feeling the blissful experiences in the body as uh, a bit of different levels and actually going through them and doing this for some time, concentrating on each, each of the feelings in the body. And as I do this, because of the words that are used, I can feel the endorphin levels in my body actually rising. Um, so That's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. It, and it really works. For me, it works. It's very strong, actually. And uh, the other interesting thing about this practice is if I get distracted while I'm doing it, as long as I keep with the practice and keep using the words and keep feeling the feelings, if other thoughts come in which normally would distract my one-pointed investigation, they don't affect this practice. These words and these feelings, in, they do continually in, increase the endorphin levels of my body. Hmm. And you can leave you feeling blissful for hours, literally hours. I see you as a scientist. You're doing what scientists do. You have a certain understanding that you've gained and then you you use empirical methods to live the reality of that understanding and you're not satisfied with mere beliefs it has to be an experience you know that yeah, yeah it has to work. believing that a restaurant serves good food you could starve to death doing that you have to actually get in there and eat the food <laughs> yeah 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 like i said before squeeze every drop out of yeah. existence in every moment squeeze every drop it's a beautiful life once you start doing that and you were talking about the phase of, I got it, I lost it, you know, losing that awakeness. Initially, was it kind of contrasting and painful? Was it sort of like you really had it, but then you felt miserable? And did the contrast even out over time? So you really, you know, there's not a huge shift from having it to losing it? Well, to start with, I was very lucky and I had such a strong awakening. This is the Gangi retreat. The basically right. I felt... I felt just naturally fairly sort of semi-inebriated for about a year. So <laughs> I didn't ever feel I lost it for that year. But the thing about being painful, as soon as any mental suffering occurs, as soon as any pain occurs, that is a wake-up call to the fact that you're misidentified. Because when you're identified with and as pure awareness, there is no mental suffering. There might be mental pain, but there's no mental suffering. There's a difference between the two. So as soon as any mental suffering occurs, which nearly always relates to the small I that I think I am, to myself, that is a wake-up call to the fact that you're misidentifying. And if you treat those as wake-up calls and immediately restart the investigation and rediscover that you are not the small self, then that pain, or not, it's not pain, it's mental suffering, that mental suffering vanishes. It's the same with angst about the future, that vanishes. So the answer to your question, it really is that I never experienced any long, painful periods because mental suffering always brings you back to awareness. It's actually a win-win situation. Mental suffering brings you back to awareness of awareness. Have you ever had a disease or an injury or something like that that was really painful? Oh, yeah. Or yeah, and yeah. How did it hold up under those circumstances? Okay, so this is fascinating, actually, because I've often wondered about pain. Because I woke up in 1996, which is 25 years ago, mm -hmm. and I... Basically, I've got a very healthy body. It's, I've been very lucky. I'm, I do yoga every day and I look after myself, but you know, I've been lucky with my body. So I hadn't really experienced anything like this until two or three years ago. I very, got very bad toothache. It was a kind of stabbing toothache. And I, I discovered that if I 
settled somewhere quietly and noticed that I was aware of the toothache, okay? This is like noticing you're aware of thoughts and sensations, that other practice I was telling you about. I noticed that I was aware of the toothache. And the more I noticed that I was aware of the toothache, the more the awareness came into the foreground and the toothache went into the background. It was just something appearing in the awareness. And the less it bothered me. Until finally I got to the stage where the toothache was still there, but it was of no consequence whatsoever. And I'd fall asleep because this is, I was trying to get to bed and sleep. That was quite interesting. About a year later, or two years later, just a couple of years ago, I sprained some ligaments in my arm really quite badly. This is a silly story, but I live in the Australian outback in the bush, and wild dogs in this place were a menace, and they'd killed the wallaby and brought the dead carcass into my pottery. So I had a dead wallaby in my pottery. So I picked it up with a shovel, and I thought, I've got to get rid of this. So I took it out to some scrub ground, and I just threw it into the weeds. Then we've got this long weeds ground called Lantana. Anyway, I just thought I'd chuck it in there and forget about it. And as I did that, I'm quite old. I'm 73 now. You know, I should, I should have had more sense. Anyway, because I had to carry it quite a long way, and it was quite heavy, so I should have just put it down and had a rest, you know. But I didn't actually like that. And I strained the ligaments in this arm. Mm. And strained ligaments take quite a long time to recover, and they're quite painful. So... As you know, I like to lie in Shavasana to do my, all my practices. So I'm lying there, and it was painful. My left arm was painful. So every time I did my practice, I would lie there, and I would notice that there was awareness of the pain in my left arm, and I would continue to do that. It wouldn't take very long. And the pain would totally go away for about 10 or 15 minutes. But then I could resume the practice, the investigation or the whatever. And when the pain came back, I just did that again. So... Mm-hmm. This awareness of awareness can actually be used to completely remove pain, which is quite interesting. I bet you it accelerated the healing too. Well, I'm sure it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And these endorphin practices, boosting practices I do, I'm sure they accelerate the healing too. Because if you boost the endorphins in in your body, it reduces virtually all inflammation in the body. I think it's amazingly good for me. I'm just waiting to see. I'm fascinated. I'm 73, only 73. People say, they are getting near the end. I say, no, no. Nah, I'm 72. I'm, I'm your little brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't feel old. If anybody watching this, you and I should be living examples of how the spiritual practice is so good for you. Knock on wood, but I, I think if I'm in my 90s or something and my I can barely get around, I still don't think I'll feel old because... It's not a concept. It's it's an experience. You know, you are yeah, not the yeah. body. The body is just something appearing in you. All right. Well, your life is an inspiration, and your books are inspiring and full of great knowledge, and um, I highly recommend them. There's a ton of stuff we could have talked about. We can only talk about so much in a couple of hours. I'll put up your webpage, your whole thing on BathGap. You'll have a page and I'll link to whatever you want me to link to. I think you've already given me a bunch of things. And if you think of anything else that you didn't tell me earlier, then let me know and I'll, I'll add that. But people can download audios of you leading this meditative practice that you taught yeah. us earlier. You said people can get in touch with you. So I'll put your email address on there. And do you ever like to just actually talk to people on Zoom or Skype or something? I don't in general because, um, well, it can be pretty time consuming. I do have a pretty busy life. The potter is still going a little bit. I've got Mm -hmm. an old macadamia farm I look after. I've got 10 acres and it's continually overgrown with us. We live in the rainforest. Everything here grows like day of the triffids. So I'm quite busy. So I prefer to keep my correspondence to certain times of the day and i i find writing things 
sometimes it's clearer when you write it and the person can then reread it. Plus it gives you book material if you write this stuff. That's true. Every single interaction I have with somebody, if it's something on a new subject that I haven't done before, becomes a chapter in a book. That's great. I should uh, learn a lesson from that. I have a folder on my computer, which whenever I write something interesting, I throw it in that folder. I think one of these days I'm going to go in there and sort all that stuff out, turn it into something. (laughs) Continually telling everybody to write down anything they discover and to put it out there so we can all hear it. Good. Well, thanks so much, Colin. I really enjoyed uh, this whole week of listening to your books and this these couple of hours of talking to you. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too. I knew it was going to be fun. Yeah. Thanks to those who've been listening or watching and those who are listening to the uh, live stream. Sorry about all that delay in the beginning. We had a couple hundred people on watching, but working out some technical things. Now, as most of you know, this is an ongoing series and uh, we have, we usually schedule them two, three months in advance. And there's an upcoming interviews page where you can see what we've got scheduled. I hope you listen to some more or watch some more. There's a uh, audio podcast of the program too. So if you're watching this on YouTube and you'd like to subscribe to the audio podcast, there's a page for that on badcap.com and other things that you'll find interesting if you poke around through the menus there. So thanks for your time and thank you, Colin. One quick question. Is there a written transcript about it? We could create one. If somebody wants to proof it, I could create one and and you could prove it. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be great because then it's another chapter for my next book. (laughs) Alrighty. So thank you all. See you next time. Thanks, Trip.